Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. I've got 12 weeks to work on my timing there. So, uh, but hey, are you ready to start a new book of the Bible today? Yes. All right. Well, then, hey, grab your Bible, and I'll make this real easy this morning. Go to page one. Uh, today, we're going to start a series uh, through the first book of the Bible, and I'm, I'm both really excited and a little bit nervous, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, I am excited because this book of Genesis, it's the book of beginnings. It's foundational for everything else that follows in Scripture. If, if you've been here at Fair Oaks any amount of time, you know that almost every week we go back to page one of the Bible because page one informs everything that comes after it. So uh, I'm really excited to get into these chapters that Jesus and the authors of the New Testament believed were fundamental uh, to our lives. And so I'm really excited. At the same time, I'm a little nervous. Um, because I don't know if you know this, but there's some controversy surrounding the book of Genesis. Uh, and if I could just lay my cards on the table like week one right at the beginning, I think a lot of that controversy um, is unfortunately based on things that actually aren't in the text of Genesis. It's kind of our baggage that we bring in, impose on the text, and then we fight over stuff that isn't even there, and we miss out on the life-changing message that is there. And so what I want to do with this series is try to strip away some of the baggage that we bring to this text so that we could hear uh, from the timeless Word of God in these important chapters. And um, the reason I say I have some nerves around that is because um, I know that in order to strip away the baggage, um, I risk being um, mislabeled and misunderstood. But that is space I will gladly step into because I believe that these chapters are so important. And I'm excited for us to hear afresh um, from the opening chapters of the Bible in this series. And so we'll get started with this. We'll just start with the title of the book. Seems like a, a basic place to begin. The title is Genesis. It comes from the opening words, in the beginning. So we're real creative with how we design our series here. The tagline is in the beginning. It comes from the title, Genesis. Uh, and that's really what this book is going to do. It's going to tell us our origin story, where we all uh, came from. Um, the book was written by Moses. Now, uh, if you went to college or if you're in college, you might have had a professor tell you it wasn't, um, because people love to argue over just about everything about this book. Um, but Jesus says that it was. So guess what? Moses wrote the book. I'm going to pull the Jesus card. You know, like you might have a lot of degrees, but Jesus, he... Um, you know, God knows a thing or two. So uh, it was written by Moses, which would place uh, the writing of this text somewhere around 1,400 years before the birth of Christ. Um, it, and it would place it in the time when God's people are coming out of slavery in Egypt uh, and on their way to the promised land. This was a, a new beginning for the people of Israel. This was an important day, much like where we are as a church right now, kind of a new beginning the next 65 years. And what God inspires Moses to write about at the, the beginning of this new era for the people of God is he inspires them, Moses to tell them about their beginnings. Um, he inspires them to talk about things like, um, how did we get here? Why are we here? What is our purpose? Um, you know, why is the world so messed up? Uh, and how is it going to be made right again? Um, the thing, in, in other words, Genesis is written to address questions that we're still asking today, right? Uh, these are the foundational questions to any uh, worldview. And so I point that out to say that what we have in Genesis, it is not only an ancient book, it is not only a time-tested book, because there's a lot of philosophies and ideas that come up about these ideas, but this is uh, nearly three and a half millennia old. It is a good place to go to learn about life and God and ultimate reality. It is not just an ancient book, it is a timeless book. And by telling us about our true origin story, um, this text is meant to lead us into a deeper and a richer life. Um, it's written to address the most important questions of life that you and I are living uh, today. And so uh, I think it's going to be quite a journey. Uh, we'll spend 12 weeks this fall getting through the first 11 chapters that are really about all humanity, and then we'll take a little break, take a little chunk every year, um, come back for the story of uh, Israel and Abraham next fall. So we're just going to do the first 11 chapters this fall, and stick with us. We've got a four-year plan to get through the book. It should be awesome. I think it's going to be a, a great journey, and it all begins with what Francis Schaeffer called the most pregnant sentence ever written. Are you ready? All right, Genesis 1-1. 
begins like this. I always say page one of the Bible. You've got table of contents, prefaces, features. Okay, here we go. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. That's as far as we're going to get today. Um, now, some of you, you're laughing. You're like, how long are we going to be in the book of Genesis? Uh, we'll, we'll pick up the pace eventually. Um, but this sentence is so familiar to us that I thought um, we, we really could do a whole week on this sentence. Um, to really, I think because it's so familiar to us, um, we can sometimes miss out on the power of that statement that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what my plan is for today is that we'll just take that sentence apart one piece at a time so that we could allow that statement that maybe is familiar to a lot of us to hit us in a fresh way. Um, so let's, let's take it one piece at a time. In the beginning. Um, this is a difficult thing because uh, you and I are finite beings. Um, what I mean by that is we just, we can't even conceive of life outside of the confines of time. I was, I was trying to do that this week. I was thinking about, like, what would I do if I wasn't bound by time? And I thought, well, maybe I'd go to the future and see how long it takes to get our flying cars. I know Back to the Future lied to us, but when do we actually get them? Um, or maybe I'd go full Marty McFly, get my sports almanac, go back in time, and live a really good life back in time. But as I'm doing this, I realize, dang it, no, all of that is still living inside of time. I'm just a time traveler moving through time, but I am still living within the confines of it, even if I can move freely from one period to the next. Are you with me? I'm still living in time. That's not outside of time. Um, and as I was uh, thinking about this thought exercise, uh, you know, I'm sitting in this text all week. I, I'm realizing how much of our everyday conversations are dictated by time. What time are you going to wake up? What time are you going to get home? Uh, do you have a few minutes to chat? How long will this meeting last for? Will this meeting ever end? Um, you know, how long uh, ago did you meet your spouse? How old are your kids? How long have you lived in this neighborhood? Will this sermon ever end? Our, our question, so much of our day is spent asking questions that are related to time because we are time-bound beings. This is the world in which we live. We can't even conceive of a life outside of it. All of this is time. And what Moses says is before there was anything, before there was even time itself, there is a being there. In the beginning, God. According to the Bible, God is the only being that was there before time. He is the only one who is eternal, who has always been, who stands outside of time. Is uh, The way the New Testament will say is he's the first and the last. He has always been. He will always be. And if that makes your head hurt, just thinking of like, how, how has God always existed? That's the point. You and I are time-bound beings. We have a hard time even consist, uh, uh, conceiving of a being that can always have existed. Like, what does that mean? But the opening sentence of the Bible says, before there was time, God was there. In the beginning, God. So according to the Bible, God is the only one who has no beginning. He is the only one who has always been and will always be. And so what comes next might be a logical uh, extrapolation of that for you, um, but I want to do it anyway. So we've got in the beginning, God. There's this timeless, eternal being that's different than everything that comes afterwards because he has always been, always will be. In the beginning, what did this God do? God created the heavens and the earth. Now, um, we'll talk about this uh, more next week when we get into the days of creation. Um, but it's important as we read this text to remember um, that this was written nearly three and a half centuries, uh, a millennia ago. Um, that this is an ancient book. And so the original audience, they had no concept of uh, living on a ball on a globe that was spinning through space. So when you hear Earth, you and I, we think like Apollo 13, kind of the shot, uh, looking back at this blue ball in the window, they would have had no concept of that. Um, and, and so I think, uh, you know, a more literal translation of this, maybe a more helpful one, is, um, is one of my professors has suggested um, that in the beginning, God created the sky and the land. Um, what, what Moses is doing, he's not saying that God made earth but not Mars, okay? Um, what he's doing is he's saying uh, to the people, hey, look up. Do you see the sky up there? God made that. Look down. Do you see the land there? 
God made that. And by the way, that's how this word is translated throughout Genesis 1 and 2. It's land, it's land, it's land. So when you hear heavens and the earth, you got to think, look up. Do you see that? God made that. Look down. Do you see that? So he's not saying God made earth but not Mars. What he's saying is um, God made everything. Um, this is what literary nerds call a merism where you take two opposites to describe totality. So when he says, look up and look down, he's not saying God didn't make the things in between. Are you with me? Maybe. Okay, someone is. Uh, God made the heavens and the earth. I'll put it to you this way. If I said to Karen, um, I looked high and low for my glasses, uh, do you think she would say, did you look in between? Now, she actually might because I am terrible at looking around for things. I'm not very observant. But she wouldn't say that because she misunderstood me and think I literally didn't look at eye level. She would say that because she knows me and I'm terrible at looking for things when they're lost. The point is we do this all the time. We say this high and low. What we mean is everything. So when Moses says that God created the skies and the land, what he's saying is God made everything. You look up, he made that up there. You look down there, he made that. He made everything up there, down there, and everything in between. In the beginning, God created everything that exists. That's what's going on in this statement here. And, and, and so you can look at that and have all these like what ifs. Like, well, what about the, the galaxies way out there? Well, that would be included when you look up there. Um, what about cats? Um, apparently he did. I, I don't know. Like, you, you might be like, why, why would God create cats? I don't know. Maybe before the fall they were awesome. I, I don't, <laughs> got some cat fans here. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, yeah, if, if, if it exists, God made it. That's the point. Heavens and earth, skies and land, everything out there. So take anything, fill in that blank. Did God make this? The question is yes. Um, now we'll get into this next week. If you're like, well, what about evil? Did God create evil? Um, well, actually evil's not a thing in of itself. It's a distortion of a good thing. You can't have evil be made. Evil is a good thing that has been broken. Um, but you'll have to keep coming for the evil stuff. That's like weeks away, guys. Um, the point is this. Before Moses can get to describing evil and what's broken in the world, he has to start with this more fundamental reality. Because everything that's been made draws its source from the God who is eternal and outside of time. It comes from him. What that means is that you and I, we have a creator. And the most fundamental distinction between any beings out there is between God who made everything and everything else that would be creation. There's creator and creation. That is what page one of the Bible is opening up saying that in the beginning there was God who was before everything and this God made everything that exists. God is the creator of all things. If you've got that, you've got Genesis 1-1. You've got the doctrine of creation. You nailed it. Um, and it's a fairly simple idea. Uh, it's so simple that our three-year-old has memorized this um, to a pretty upbeat hip song in the beginning, God, you know. Um, so no pressure on you, but our three-year-old memorized this. Uh, so you can memorize Bible too, that's the point. Um, it's so simple that our three-year-old can memorize it, and yet um, there's a reason that Francis Schaeffer called this the most pregnant sentence in all of Scripture. Uh, in fact, if you look at uh, the origin stories in the ancient world when this was being written, this is like a shot over the bow to every other ancient story that starts completely different. All the other stories are, in the beginning, there's all these gods, and they're fighting, and then out of that, you know, they made us humans to serve one side. Like, it, it, it all starts with a certain tone and in a certain way. And the scriptures alone describe a reality where God pre-exists everything, and everything else draws its existence from him. This is an incredible incredible statement. Um, and so what I want to do today is help us um, with our remaining time try to press it into our lives a little bit. Because I think it's one thing to say, I believe that in the beginning God made everything. Um, I have friends that aren't Christians that would say, yeah, uh, that seems more logical to me than all of this happened by accident. Like if our planet was just a little bit closer to the sun, um, we would all be burned up right now. If it was a little bit farther away, we would feel like we're living in the Pacific Northwest right now. We'd be cold and wet. It just wouldn't be good. Like you can say, I believe this sentence, but I think it's one thing to say, um, I believe that there was a being that made everything. It's another thing to let this truth sink down to a level of worldview that shapes how you see everything about the world. And that's what this text is meant to do. Now, I don't know how often you think about your worldview, but we all have one. 
Um, what a worldview is, is it's almost like, here's the most helpful analogy I've heard. It's like a pair of glasses that you're wearing um, that, through which you see the world. So you put on your glasses like you put on a worldview, and in, incorporated in those glasses is a set of values and assumptions about life through which you see the world. So, for example, earlier, the folks that were offended by the cat statement, uh, you and I have a different worldview, where I, I, I can look at a cat and be like, ugh, what in the world? You can look at a cat and be like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Uh, we have different worldviews. We're looking at the same information, but colored through my glasses, they go, hey, I think there's a reason the Egyptians saw them as the guardians of the underworld. Uh, and coming through your glasses, that might be like, hey, the Egyptians had some flaws in their thinking. Like, I don't know, the pyramids are cool, but I don't know that we should be taking our understanding of animals from them. Like, we, we would have different uh, lenses through which we were seeing. We have different values and different assumptions. And that's true in a thousand different ways with the people we talk with. And I think um, what can often happen is we talk at the level of uh, what I think, um, but we don't th talk about the level of what I believe. What is the view that shapes how I see the world? And so we could say, oh yeah, sure, I believe that God made everything. Uh, that seems logical. But um, I think at a more fundamental level, there are some um, other worldviews that maybe are shaping us more than this. And this opening sentence is meant to be the starting block of a new and life-giving worldview that can change your life. Um, we're living in a really interesting time where, like, Western culture is kind of living on the fumes of the biblical worldview. Um, so if you're older, you might have more of this worldview in you than, like, some of us who are younger. Um, but we're kind of entering into a time like Israel, where the world around us is shaped by a very different story, a very different narrative. Uh, and in the book of Genesis, it's going to, for us, just like the people of Israel, it's going to give us a new story and a new narrative, and it has the power to lead us into a new kind of life. Um, and I know that sounds so philosophical. Like, I, I know I'm not normally very philosophical. Like, oh my goodness, what have you been studying this week? Um, so I want to try to make this really practical. I want to lay this idea on the ground of allowing this sentence to become the building blocks through which we see the world. Not simply something we would check a box on on a survey, but really the center from which we live our life based on. And so to make this practical, um, what I'm going to do for the rest of our time together is I want to compare and contrast um, this statement with um, five of the most popular worldviews um, that you and I encounter on a daily basis in our world. Uh, now, there's certainly more than five. Um, I didn't get these five from the text. I'm trying to apply this truth to our time because if I wanted to apply this to the worldviews of the ancient Near East, that might be an interesting lecture to you, but that's not going to impact your life in the same way talking about how this timeless truth wants to speak to our day. So there's surely more than five worldviews. I'm sure of that. Um, this would actually be a great discussion in your gospel communities this week of what other worldviews do we see in the world? How does the opening sentence of the Bible compare to that? So there's certainly more. Um, what I've got for you today is five, which is, I'm, as a Baptist, I'm comfortable with three. So I stretch for you all this morning, all right? We got five to go through. And... Um, what I want to do is um, try to lay it out in a way that someone that holds this worldview would agree with. I want to be totally fair to the worldview. Um, and then I want to lay Genesis 1-1 next to it and, and try to show, here's where I think this is actually better news than this worldview has to offer us. And so there's going to be a lot of overlap as we go through. These aren't perfect, neat categories. There's overlap between these worldviews. But I want to spend the rest of our time looking at five popular worldviews that you and I encounter on a daily basis and look at how this sentence is an invitation into a new and better kind of life. That this sentence is actually good news to those of us living in this world over here. Are you with me? All right, number one, uh, materialism. Uh, now, if you're in the note-taking type, I actually put this on our worship guide online, faroaks.org slash guide. You can get a summary here if you just want to be able to listen right now. Number one uh, is materialism. This is the idea that nothing exists beyond the material world. Um, now, Madonna wrote the theme song for this. Um, which if you're over 60, ask someone under 60 next to you what that means. If you're uh, under 30, ask someone over 30 what that means. I realized, wow, that was a very niche comment. She's a material girl living in a material world, right? Um, that's materialism for you. What, the, the basic idea, she might have written the theme song for it, but this idea has been around ever since the scientific revolution. Um, and it's, I think, appealing to us as modern people because the basic assumption of this worldview is the only stuff that's real is the stuff that we can measure with our five senses. 
So um, reality is what I can observe, what I can take in, what is material, what is physical. That is what is ultimately real. And I think this is um, appealing to us as modern people because we can look back at generations prior and be like, look at how superstitious they were. They thought there was a demon behind every corner. Like we have um, kind of evolved and become um, a little bit more um, thoughtful that we could understand, well, no, there's bacteria in that and it's doing all of this. So this is um, very attractive to us as modern people, um, I think in some sense it's very objective. And so it feels rational, it feels logical, um, but here's the problem I think with this. Uh, The problem is you can't make sense of the most important things in life with a a strictly materialistic worldview. Um, You can't measure things like love and justice with a stethoscope or a telescope. Um, there are things beyond the material world that impact our lives. Now, th- this, if you can't explain, there's a, a great scene in the movie Interstellar that gets at this, because I, I, I want to let popular culture speak to this one. Matthew McConaughey, um, if you haven't seen the movie, I, I hope these aren't big spoilers, because I think this is an incredible film. Um, in Interstellar, Matthew McConaughey uh, is kind of arguing for a materialistic worldview, and he's saying, well, you know, love, um, that's actually ultimately explainable at a biological level, that this is a, a biological need to convince people to raise children, which is a pretty good argument, because children can be cute at times, but they can also be a pain at times. You know, like there's the crying in the night, there's all of this, and so what is biologically going to take the machine that is man to raise this child, well, we'll put a little biological love in their heart so that the 17th time they poop on the wall, you won't freak out. And so this is the argument Matthew McConaughey is making. And then Anne Hathaway, uh, she just, she listens to him saying this, and she's like, okay, that's a pretty good argument, but why do we love people who have died? Where's the utility in that? Pow, mic drop. I love Matthew McConaughey as much as the next guy or maybe the next gal, but, um, She nailed them on that one. That, like, you cannot simply explain love in a biological component like he tries to do because there is a type of love that exists that goes beyond what is um, uh, materially useful. And so uh, that's what this is getting at, that materialism, it is practical, it is logical, it is grounded in so many ways, and yet when it comes to the most important moments in life, it often falls flat on its face. Um, And this is why I think you see our culture, by and large, that is largely materialistic, crying out for justice right now, but we're so confused about justice because we can't even agree what is good, right, and true. We have no objective reality that we are grounding justice in, and so we're screaming at one another right now. And and really, materialism has no tools to offer us to say that there's something beyond us to ground a sense of goodness, rightness, and justice in. And so what we're left with is basically uh, morality by majority rule, which if you know anything about history has often led to some of the worst atrocities in human history. Uh, The Nazis, I looked this up this week, were materialists. Hitler used that word. He would say, oh yeah, this is what we like from kind of this side of the political aisle. We like materialism. This is good over here. And golly, I know anytime you say the Nazis, we're all like, well, not me. Um, so, so let me say it this way. Um, here's how I think that materialism can be um, alive and well in the church of Jesus Christ today. Among Christians who would say, I believe that God created everything that exists. That's my statement of faith. I think here's where we see materialism come to the surface, if we're really honest. Um, have any of you found, as we're doing the 65 days of prayer, Um, that it can be difficult at times to stop for even a minute or two and pray without your mind drifting and wandering off to other things? I see a couple of honest people. Uh, Yeah, like I'm still setting the reminders on my phone, and I set a timer to tell me when. It's Sometimes it's just a minute, but I just want to take a moment, and I'm going to let my watch tell me when the time is up so my mind doesn't wander. You know what's going on in that moment? I... If you've experienced this, you, we are being materialists where um, we assume that the physical things that we see is more real than the things that we don't see. Like I was thinking about this. Would I have a hard time staying in focused in prayer if Jesus was sitting in the chair right next to me like, okay, what you got? Of course I wouldn't and neither would you. But at a fundamental level, even though we wouldn't say we're materialists, we have been so influenced. This is the air we breathe. 
it oftentimes we think the most real stuff is the things out there that we can see, and we struggle to stay focused in prayer because there's, as Jesus says, God in secret whom we can't see. And blessed are you who have believed without seeing based on the testimony. And so I, I think this is where we can all struggle with materialism. And if you've struggled with this reality, um, if you've at all found yourself living as if the most real thing is the physical stuff around you, here's the good news I think that Genesis 1 would offer to you. Um, there, according to the sentence, is something more real than the material reality that surrounds you. There is um, this being who created all of these things, and this being can be the source of love and justice. So, so you're not left to determine um, what is good and right based on the passing whims of cultural society, but th there is a timeless eternal source for the things that matter most. And so we're not left to figure this out in the dark, but he is the determiner of what is good, right, and true. And so we don't have to look to majority rules. We can look beyond the material world to the God who is eternal to fix these things for us. Um, and, and, and the God who is this reality beyond the material who created it all, um, he is a personal God who invites you into relationships. So when you seek to pray, um, the good news is you're not talking into thin air, that the God who is eternal is listening. And you have his ear, which when you think about it is an incredible truth. That is the claim that the opening page of the Bible is making, that there is a being out there who started it all, who made it all. And as you continue in the Bible, we see he's the God that we are to call Father, and wants to hear from us when we pray. But now I'm getting way ahead of myself. Okay, so that's materialism. Number two, nihilism. Uh, this is the idea that life is random and ultimately meaningless. Um, this is often paired with uh, like a healthy dose of, no, not a healthy dose, a more than healthy dose of skepticism. Or pessimism is maybe a better way to say it. Um, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Fight Club, uh, this is Tyler Durden's worldview. Um, that, man, life is random, life is meaningless, like, we might as well just start punching each other, right? Like, let's just get it all out there. Um, if, if you're not into Fight Club, that's not a recommendation, by the way. I just realized I might get some emails on the Interstellar one. So, um, here is uh, a more classical representation. Frederick Nietzsche, who kind of made this view famous, here's what he said. He said, to live is to suffer, to survive is to find some meaning in the suffering." Real chipper guy. Would have made the great singer to a grunge band. Um, but I said, I want to be fair to these worldviews. Like, okay, let's, let's be honest. This worldview didn't come out of nothing. Um, this, this worldview hasn't been popular in recent years, but it's making a real comeback, I think. And maybe you can imagine why. Um, because the world is messed up. Uh, there is a lot to be pessimistic about. Uh, and so there's some truth in this that it's tapping into. Um, Man, if, if, if life underneath the sun is uh, Ecclesiastes we were talking about last week, if life under the sun is all there is, this place is meaningless. Like, good people die and bad people live. Why is that? This, uh, I, I don't understand. But, but the problem with this worldview is it starts with fall, not creation. It... Um, and in some ways, it's materialistic because it only looks at life in this world, not life beyond this world that has come into this world to make it new, that is promised to renew this world. And so, um, again, like, here's where I think this idea creeps into our thinking. If you ever think, um, man, my life has no meaning, my life has no purpose, like, what am I doing here? Like, it'd be better if I wasn't here. If you've ever felt that way, here's the good news of Genesis 1-1 for you. You are not an accident. You are not a random collision of space dust that was just going through the cosmos and poof, you accidentally landed here. What Genesis 1-1 claims is that there is a creator who thought you up, who brought you into existence. You know who's included in the heavens and the earth? You, me, we, all of us. 
And so what Genesis 1-1 would say to life being random and meaningless is, yes, the, the world is messed up. We'll get to that in a couple of chapters. But that's not where the story begins, and it ain't where it ends. That there is a creator God who thought you up, who brought you into existence for a purpose. And that means your life has meaning, your life has value, especially as you would come to know the one that made your soul. You are of far more value than the ravens is the way that Jesus will say it. So that, that's what um, Genesis 1-1 would say to nihilism. Okay, I want to keep moving on these. Number three, narcissism. Now, I don't know a single person that would claim this is their worldview. I don't know a single person that would say, oh yeah, I'm a classically trained narcissist. Um, but I, I would argue I think this is one of the most common fundamental worldviews today, or functional ones anyway. And, and and, and hear me, I'm not talking about a clinical diagnosis of narcissism. I'm talking about um, the general attitude that thinks of oneself as the center of the universe. Um, and if that is too abstract of a way to say it, let me, let me just say it a little bit more directly. Um, I think a lot of times we want to be the point, right? Um, like I live with... Uh, four women, um, and uh, we're in kind of this pivotal season of the church life here where I'm working long days, long hours, and I come home. I'll just be honest with you. I come home after a long day, and I want to be the point. I want my children to be like, Father, we are so glad you are home. We have prepared some presents for you. Here is dinner for you. I want Karen just to be ready to engage. Like, hey, how are the sharks doing? How was your day? Anything you want to talk about? I want to be the point. And so, so often my frustration is I come home and I expect that to be the case and I walk in and it's crazy because when you have kids three, four, and five in the house, there's no father when you come home. And, and Karen, like, uh, for as much as I want her to ask me about my day, she's been with young children most of the day, which is liable to drive a person insane if that's all you're doing all day. And so, like, I realize how much, like, I want to be the point that in so much of our disappointments in life are us expecting everyone to make us the point. And here, here's the thing about this. Everyone else expects the same from you, too. So here I am expecting me to be the point. Karen's expecting her to be the point. Our three children are dang sure expecting themselves to be the point because they haven't had the point to grow and mature to see that and be like, oh, I don't, I don't want to do that. Here's the point in all of this. Um... You would almost expect, okay, so the good news of Genesis 1-1 is there's a God and you're his point and he's going to build the whole universe around you. Um, and, and this is actually, I would say, the Christian version of narcissism. Um, in 2005, there was this groundbreaking study. I'm forgetting the sociologist. It's Christian Smith and, and another woman that they, they did this uh, groundbreaking study. They had every youth pastor read it. And basically, it reviewed the... Um, the religious ideas of Christian teenagers. And what it reviewed, uh, it, it, kind of what they concluded was, um, the underlying belief is that God is like, um, basically like a counselor, just, just wants you to be happy, that you just, um, he exists to serve you. He doesn't want to get involved in your life and tell you what to do, but he wants you to, the words are moralistic therapeutic deism. He wants to give you a little bit of good advice that's going to make you feel good without getting too involved in your life. And this is essentially the Christian version of narcissism, that we come to church and um, we're not so interested in God and bringing him glory, we're interested in God bringing us glory. Um, and, and again, this is difficult because I said each of these worldviews has an element of truth in it. We said this a few weeks ago, that Jesus came that we might have life. Jesus wants you to be fully alive. Um, but according to the opening sentence of the Bible, there is a God and it is not you. And if you can receive that, that is good news. Because then that can free you up to simply be human to not be disappointed with everyone around you. And I will tell you this, the more you can realize you are not the point, that he is the point, and that life is found not by trying to get yourself to be the point, but rather by bringing your life into orbit around the one who is the point, that is where freedom is found. And so the good news of Genesis 1 for you and me who uh, just struggle with wanting life to revolve around us is um, there's a God that life actually revolves around and he loves you. And he wants to lead you into life. And that life begins by realizing you didn't create everything. You're not at the center. Selah.
And I promise you, if you can sit with that truth this week, it is good news that will set you free. Number four, um, expressive individualism. Um, This is one where if I haven't offended you yet, I know I'm going to do it here. So let's just get ready. Um, And I say that because this is, I think, by and large, the dogma of our day. Expressive individualism is the idea that finding and being true to oneself um, is the deepest, or excuse me, um, let me say that again. It's finding and being true to one's deepest self is the key to life. So basically, the idea in expressive individualism is the way that you will find life is by looking within to follow your heart, to find what desires you have, and to the degree that you can fulfill those desires, then you will be alive. Now, some of you, you're like, what's wrong with this? Because this is the air we breathe. This is every Disney movie that's been made in the last 10 years. That... um, Uh, If you want to really be alive, you have to really throw off the shackles of your friends and your family and your church and your God and everybody who loves you. And you have to go out and reinvent yourself and come up with your own identity. And you will only be free insofar as you can live into that identity and in most cases have people celebrate that identity. This is, in so many ways, the dogma of our day and... um, And I struggle for how to say this in a way that you won't feel offended. So I'm going to quote a non-Christian right now to talk about the madness of this. Um, There is a uh, sociologist named um, Robert Bella. He was um, a professor of sociology at uh, UC of Berkeley for uh, many years before he died. Um, And in his groundbreaking book, Habits of the Heart, which came out in the late 80s, just to give you a clue of like how good his research was and how dialed in on the trends he was, here's what uh, Robert Bella says uh, in Habits of the Heart, speaking to this idea of I have to follow my heart, I have to be true to me, that ultimate life and ultimate fulfillment comes from within. Here's what Robert Bella, let me clarify, Robert Bella, not Chad Francis, here's Robert Bella. He says the irony is that here too, just where we, modern people, think we are the most free, we are most coerced by the dominant beliefs of our own culture. For it is a powerful cultural fiction that we not only can, but must make up our deepest beliefs in isolation from our private selves. This man was not a Christian. He is not writing from a biblical worldview, but he is looking at expressive individualism or what we would call expressive individualism today. And he said, there's some problems with this. He calls it a cultural fiction. What he's saying is, this puts way too much pressure on you to be the one that determines who you are and what's going to make you happy. Like, good grief, I can't even decide what I'm going to eat for breakfast or what I'm going to wear most days. And I've got to decide who I am, what's going to fulfill me. What he says is it's a powerful cultural fiction that you think you must do that, which I would have loved to sit down with him and say, tell me your alternative. Because I I was reading some things this week. The guy was definitely not a Christian. He denied the resurrection of Jesus. No, there's no life after this. Maybe he was a materialist. I don't know. But he's on to something when he says this is too much pressure to put on yourself. And this is especially our younger generation is being indoctrinated in this. And it's why there's so much anxiety and depression and freaking out. Because this is a pressure that you and I as time-bound creatures, we can't handle. We are not the creator. We are the creation. We cannot determine who we are because we didn't make us. And so there's this terrible pressure. And then he goes on to add, and I'm not going to press this point too far, but he also says, uh, if you think that you're actually deciding for yourself and not just mimicking cultural trends at large, you're fooling yourself. He calls it cultural fiction. I'll just leave that there for you. That's Robert Bellasat, and I think he might be on to something there as well. Um, And that sounds extreme. I know maybe certain ideas are running through your mind right now. Let me talk about where I think we see this in the church. Because I'm primarily concerned with us first. I don't want to preach against them out there. I want to expose our lives to the word of God so that the Holy Spirit might apply the good news of the gospel to our hearts so that we might have a new life, so that we might burst out of here with new life, equipped to share that life with others. So let's talk you and me right now. Um, Anytime we come to something in the Bible and we say, I don't like that. That's expressive individualism. Where it, 
you know, I, I don't know what your week was like, um, but the ideas of putting others first. I was really dialed into the narcissism one this week. Like some of you know, our family's been grieving, and um, so I'm long days down in San Jose going through stuff, and man, I really wanted to be the point this week, and really just having the Holy Spirit tell me, you're not the only one grieving right now. Um, the first time that came up, I didn't like that. I'm not the only one grieving right now, but maybe I was the closest to Grandpa. Um, what that is, is me looking at the word of God and going, I don't like what you're saying right now. To love others as you would love yourself, to think not too much of your own interests, but to think of the interests of others around you. Like This is straight up New Testament. I'm not making things up here. This is what God has told us. This is what the Holy Spirit is impressing on my heart. And I'll just be straight with you. My first instinct was, I don't like that. And what that is, is expressive individualism that says, I know what's going to make me happy right now. You might know what makes everybody else happy, but not me. And so, um, so, so then um, what happens when we do this is we, we say things like, well, what's that mean in Greek? And we try to find our way around it. Or we say, well, the Bible, man, just talk to Jesus and he'll tell you what to do. The problem is Jesus always tells you to do what you always want to do anyway. And so I think this is what happens in the church with expressive individualism is our baseline assumption is I have to be true to what feels good to me, and Jesus has to come in and help that. And this is where I said there's overlap in all of these. There's a lot of moralistic, therapeutic deism in that. But this is where this reality hits the church, to think that it is up to me to determine flourishing. And that God needs to get on my program. And if God won't get on my program, then I need to re-kind of think my faith or rethink my God. And if you've ever felt that way, you're feeling that way right now. Um, what, what I would submit to you is the good news of Genesis 1-1 to you is that you are not left alone to figure out who you are. That it is not up to you to determine what flourishing looks like for your life. That there is an eternal creator who is older than you, smarter than you, who is more invested in your good than you are who has a lot of experience about what leads to life and what will not. And your creator who made you and loves you wrote Genesis so that you might know what would lead you into life. And so the pressure's off of you to determine who you are. You don't need to determine that. God has already told you that. And it is a, uh, the way Jesus would say it is my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the invitation is stop trying to invent yourself. Stop trying to follow your heart and follow Jesus. He's a much better master than what Robert Bella calls the cultural fiction that you can determine your own flourishing. So come home to him this morning is the invitation of Genesis 1.1. And that, that really brings us to number five. Um, Number five would classically be called deism, though I don't know anybody today that would own that label. Um, I think a lot of people in this camp would maybe consider themselves agnostic, or the term a lot of my friends would use is spiritual but not religious. Have you heard this one? So, so uh, fundamentally what's underneath this um, is the idea that, yeah, maybe a god set all of this in motion, but then he left. He's like an absentee landlord that just kind of created everything, set the universe in motion, and he's out there. He might be out there. I don't know. We can't know. There's a lot of varieties of this. But basically the idea is, yeah, God made this, but he ain't involved anymore. And you might say, well, how does Genesis 1-1 speak to that? Because all Genesis 1-1 said is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, a, a deist, a classically trained deist, might, if they're smart, say, well, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. But then he peaced out and, you know, hasn't been home in a while. Um, and if we're going to continue this hypothetical conversation, well, my response to that would be, um, actually, Genesis 1-1 says more than God created everything. Yes, God created everything. So that speaks to the first four worldviews we spoke to. But the fact that we have Genesis 1-1 at all, means that our creator wants to be known. Because how would we know God created everything? Moses didn't write this by sitting on a beach at the Red Sea and reflecting on how did all of this get here. Moses wrote this as the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, we'll meet him in the text next week, um, 
inspired him about the true story of the world, spoke to him. So here's the point. The fact that we have a Bible, the fact that Genesis 1-1 is here at all, means that our creator is a speaking God, is a relational God who draws near to us and wants to be known by us. And this is why when Moses is out murdering people and running for his life, that this creator God shows up in a bush that is on fire but can't be consumed. And if you're like, that breaks my categories. Yes, he's outside of time. You should be used to him breaking your categories by now. And this God shows up to Moses and he says, I am the God of your fathers. And Moses says, well, I've heard some stories. And he's like, you won't believe this. I'm going to tell you the full thing. Are you ready? In the beginning. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Uh, What does that even mean? Just right, Moses. In the beginning, I created everything. Here's the point. The fact that we have this in our Bible proves that our creator can be known wants to be known and has drawn near to us and has written this book so that we might know him. So there's a spiritual but not religious crowd of, ah, it's just, how could we possibly know? Because he told us and he wants you to know. And so the good news is, um, it's not that God is an absentee landlord, but that God is present, that he is near to us, that he wants to lead us into life. And that's not only true because of what we see in Genesis 1-1, it's true of what we see in the rest of the Bible, and, it, and this fully comes into fruition with the person and work of Jesus. So when the first Christians thought about the story of Jesus, they thought back to this opening sentence in the Bible. Um, John, one of the first followers of Jesus, here's what he says in uh, the Gospel of John. This is how he begins his book. Tell me if this sounds familiar. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Is that breaking your categories? That's what our God does. He is a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. I don't have time right now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He continues on in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world uh, was made through him, yet it did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the big idea in Genesis 1. God made everything, and the God who made everything loves you, and he wants to be known by you, and he wants to lead you into a life that orbits around him that can follow him into true life. And he loves you so much that he spoke to this rascal named Moses to inspire this work to say, here is how I've designed life to line you up for it. And he loves us so much to know, even as he inspired that, we will look at this book from time to time and knowingly or unknowingly rebel against it and say, I think I know better. We will be expressive individualists or whatever you call it in every culture. The Bible calls it simply sin, the instinct to not do what God says, to think that we're the creator. And God doesn't just give up after the book of Genesis and be like, you guys are really messed up and give himself over to nihilism. What God does in response to our rebellion, even to having the words of life written to us, is he sends his son. The one through whom all things were made steps down into human history, into our mess, into our broken world, and he becomes human to rescue us from the mess that we've made. And what John says is, in the person and work of Jesus, the creator has come to dwell among us. And he didn't come to condemn us. He came full of grace and truth to say, I love you in spite of what you've done, and I want to lead you into the life I made you for. So come on, would you follow me into life? That is the full message of Genesis 1-1, that our creator made everything, and he loves us in spite of the way that we've messed it up, and he has come in the person of Jesus to lead us back into that life that he designed us for. And that is good news, amen? That is better news than any worldview and any philosophy out there has to offer. 
That is the good news, that no matter how we uh, can drift into these other ideologies, God isn't sitting there looking at us with a frown, that his heart toward us is gracious and kind. And so what I think he wants to do in us in this series is, as we go through the book of Genesis, I want you to expect that this story will challenge you in some ways. Because we do live in a world that is in rebellion to God. We have been shaped by other ideologies. But that is not where the story ends. The story ends with God coming to redeem and to work and to move and to lead us into life. And so I want to encourage you to come to this series expectant. That as we hear the words of life from the God who has so loved us. That he's not going to expose us to condemn us or to make us grouchy people that condemn the world around us. But that he's going to expose us like a good surgeon cutting us open to lead us deeper into life so that we can bring that life to this valley. And that's what we're going to spend our time in Genesis doing. And that's exactly why Jesus came. So I'm going to pray for us and we'll spend some time responding to the creator who's come and loved us and made all of these things possible. Jesus... um, I thank you that you are a creator that not only makes great things. Um, I I look up at the heavens and I'm like, man, you've made some cool stuff up there. I look out over this congregation and I see some great people. I thank you that you're not only a creator who makes great things, um, but you redeem broken things. Uh, I I thank you that you are a God who draws near to us in our mess. And so I pray um, that as we work through these opening chapters of this book you've given us, of this timeless truth for our lives, I pray that you would help renew our minds with the truth of your word, that your grace would open us up to receive the truth, not in a way that feels condemned, but in a way that feels free to run towards you, not with any baggage or shame or guilt, but knowing that all that guilt's been paid for and all we get to do is follow you into life. So Jesus, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to hover over us as we open this book, that as your spirit hovered over the chaotic waters that we'll see next week, that you might hover over our lives and lead us into life everlasting through this series. Would you do that to bring yourself great glory through the praise we would sing to your name? And would you do that to spread your life through this valley? Would you make this a good news place that proclaims the good news of creation, that our creator is for us and he loves to not only create but redeem? Would you do that in this place and in this valley for your fame, I ask. Amen.